open there, chapter uh, 13. We'll be bouncing around other verses and other chapters as well, so please do encourage you to have Bibles or have devices that you can follow. If you're in devices, please have them in a format that's not going to uh, disturb you or distract you. We want to focus on what God has to say to us. Uh, and, and just like we're talking to children, as we look into God's Word, we want to see that mirror. We want to see what God is reflecting to us and saying to us this day. So as we come together, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come around your Word together. We pray that you would speak to us through it. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to each and every one of us, meeting us at our point of need. May you help and enable me to bring the message that you would have us to hear. Help me to be faithful to your word. Help me to be free and at liberty to proclaim your word. May your Holy Spirit give me the, the unction and the power that I need to do that. And may it be to your glory. And may it to be our good. And may your name be exalted. And may we be blessed. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. Well, as you've already realized, and as I've already said, on Friday, uh, Rachel and I had the privilege of being at uh, Toby and Rachel's wedding. And at a wedding, th those verses, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. They're, they're the verses that we like to hear at weddings. And as we prayed, our, our prayer is that that love would be in their lives. That love of God, that love for each other may be like this that's been outlined to us. I trust that these words are an encouragement to them. I trust these words are an encouragement to all those who are married, that we would have that type of love for one another. And for the many singles here, I, I trust these words are an inspiration and something that you can look forward to seeing, particularly within marriage, if that is the case for you, or within your relationships and friendships and your church life as you go forward. But we've realized over the last few weeks, we've seen that this passage was not written for a wedding. This passage was not written for Instagrammable quotes. This passage was not written just for us to have a sentimental, touchy-feely, feel-good factor about love. It is far more than that. You see, as we've dived into this song, these verses on love that Paul penned here for the Corinthians... We found out that what this really is, this is a mirror. And what Paul was doing was holding up a mirror to this church at Corinth. And this church at Corinth that was obsessed in spiritual gifts and, and the supernatural and, and the amazing and the extraordinary. Paul is saying to them, that is not what church life is all about. He was challenging them. With love. And, and there, sandwiched in the middle of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts, starting there in chapter 12, going on to the end of chapter 14, there in the middle in 13, at the center of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts is the main point. 
And the main point I think could be summarized, as as I tried to say last week, is the centerpiece of the Christian faith is not manifest in spiritual gifts, but is manifest in Christ-like love demonstrated in every aspect of our life. And particularly relevant to those Corinthians then in their church life. And so as we are going through this passage together, And as we want to be a church that is used of God and a church that is in touch with those spiritual gifts and using them for the benefit of the church and to God's glory, what we have to remember is love is central to that. And if we have not got love, even though we may speak in amazing tongues, we're just like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Even though we may have prophetic powers and incredible sermons and amazing oratory. If we had faith that moved mountains, it is nothing if love isn't there. And if we gave all that we had and even were willing to die, if we don't have love, we gain nothing. The centerpiece of the Christian faith is not manifest in spiritual gifts. It's manifest in a Christ-like love. Demonstrated in our every part of our lives, and particularly in our church lives. And shockingly and surprisingly, Jesus is never recorded in the Gospels as saying, I love you. But every sinew of his being, every action that he took, The whole nature of him was screaming out of love in action. And these verses remind us that this love that we're called to is not sentimental and mushy. It's not something we say. It is something we do. It is something we be. It's something that we become. Jesus' life is a perfect manifestation of this love. And we've been going through these and we've seen that There's patient love. There's kind love, and that's what we need. Love that does not envy. Love that does not boast. Love that's not proud. Love that's not rude. Love that's not self-seeking. And as we've seen these attributes of love demonstrated either in the positive or the negative in Christ's life, And when I say negative, I mean is not proud. We don't see Christ as being proud, but we see him being the opposite of that, the opposite of rude, the opposite of self-seeking. And as we've seen these, we've been holding up a mirror to ourselves. And what we've been reminded of each time we've looked at these different attributes, these different aspects of love, we've been reminded that our actions, our lives a reflection of our personal love or lack of. And so where we see patience and kindness, we see that as a love that's from God. But when we see envy and boast and pride and rude and self-seeking, we realize that these are reflections and a sign that that love is not as manifest or as center stage as it should be. And so we're moving on, and we're moving on to the next one in in this list. 
And again, we're going to continue doing this by looking at Jesus' example and then applying it to our own situations. After it's not, it does not insist on its own way, it says it is not irritable or resentful. It's not irritable or resentful, or we could say it's not easily angered. We never see Christ being irritable or resentful. We, we do see Christ having a righteous anger. And so we have to bear that tension in our minds. And I will say a bit more of that as we go through. But I read that passage in, in Matthew. And I read the passage in Jonah because I think there's a helpful sense here. Of we can contrast and we can see something important here. In Matthew 12, we read that Jonah was a sign. Jonah had a task and a role as, as, as a prophet uh, back then in the day. But also in the New Testament, we seen as a sign. And, and the sign was this. He was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And I'm sure you are all good students of God's word, and, and you know what that means. This sign is pointing to the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. There were three days between them, three days between his death and his resurrection. And so as Jesus is explaining to his disciples, he's pointing forward to his death and resurrection using that illustration, using that sign from Jonah's life. And in some senses, we could say that in that particular instance, Jonah was a type of Christ in that sort of particular instance. But the sign of Jonah ends there in relation to being Christ-like. Because in Jonah's life, we see someone who insists on his own way. You know the story well. In Jonah chapter 1, he's told to go to Nineveh. And what does he do? I'm not going there. He insists on his own way. So unlike Christ, Christ, when he knew that he came, was to come to this world, he came to this world. And yet, Jonah, when he's given his mission, when he's given his marching orders... He insists on his own way. He did not want to do God's will. But not only does Jonah insist on his own way, he, he's an example of someone who gets irritable and resentful. Now let's see it in the context. God deals with Jonah in a remarkable way. He's thrown into the sea, and, and the fish swallows him up. And he has three days in the belly of a fish. And we can read his prayer and we can see what happens. And then he is spat out of the fish. And in Jonah 3 and verse 1, we get these amazing words. Because this prophet who's ran his own way, doing his own thing, we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Friends, our God is a God of second chances. And if you are here this morning and you're feeling that you've messed up, you probably have. But God is bigger than that. God is greater than that. And he comes back to his people time and time and time again. And he comes back to Jonah this second time. And he gives Jonah this job to do. And Jonah goes off. And Jonah goes to Nineveh. And it's a great city. And it takes a long time to go around. And Jonah probably is one of the best evangelists in the whole wide world. Because the whole city repents. Can you imagine? 
The whole city repents. Even the cattle repent. I don't know quite how that works, but that's what's going on here. So there's repentance all around, and Jonah's proclaimed it. And then we meet Jonah again in chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was irritated. He was angry. He was upset. He was irritable, and he was resentful. He was resentful that God had showed these wicked people mercy. Jonah wanted to be the judge and the jury. Jonah wanted these people to be destroyed. He thought they never deserved to be destroyed. These are God's enemies. Why should they have God's mercy and God's grace? He did not like the fact that the people of Nineveh repented. And worse still, God showed mercy on them. He might not have minded too much if they repented, then he still got destroyed. That might have pleased him a bit, probably. But God showed mercy. And he was irritated and angry. And, and, he, and he goes off and he sits out there and he's watching because he's just hoping that possibly God will bring fire and brimstone and destroy them and get rid of them and, and, and do that. And he's watching. And God, in his grace and mercy, shows this irritable, angry man mercy. Because they're under the hot sun. And we know something of the hot sun in Cyprus, don't we? Hot sun, baking sun, hot sun. There it is, but God gives them a shelter. This, this little plant grows up and he has shelter from it. And he's happy for a moment. And then God takes it away. And he's miserable and irritable and resentful. In verse 9 of chapter 4, God says to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And here's Jonah. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Where's Jonah's love? Where is Jonah's love? And the contrast is massive. Because we go to Calvary. We go to Gethsemane. We go to the place of the skull. We see the three crosses there. We see the Lord Jesus Christ there, naked, wounded, bleeding, in, in, in great physical pain and great agony, and in many ways close to death, but his physical human body is just fighting for life, keeping himself alive in that cruelest of deaths. And the doctor, Luke, records for us in 23, 34, that Jesus looks on and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was Jonah, irritable and resentful. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ in a far worse situation. And nothing like that. Wanting the very people that had beaten him. The very people that had nailed him to the cross between the two malefactors. The very people who were just gambling over his clothing. He says, Father, 
forgive them. And there on the left and the right of him were those two others. And and they deserved to be there. They'd done wickedness. They were there righteously in that sense. And in the beginning, both of these two were mocking Jesus. You see that in the Matthew account, verse 20, chapter 27, verse 44. And then there's a change. You see, both of them are mocking. And then one of them saw that Jesus didn't deserve to be there. He realized that him and his friend, they deserved to be there. But he realized that Christ did not deserve to be on that cross. And then he speaks to the other and says, we shouldn't be doing this. And and he turns to Jesus. And, And Luke again records this in 23 and 42. And he says, sorry, 23 and 34. And he said, so I'm getting my numbers mixed up here. He said, the man said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So Christ is there on the cross in that searing pain and agony. The criminal to his side recognizes he doesn't deserve to be there. And then he says to them, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I I don't know if you thought of it like this, but there's this huge cheek here, isn't there? There's this huge hopefulness here. You see, this man was mocking Christ a few moments ago. And this man deserved to be there. And, and, And yet, here, he reaches out to Jesus... And if there's ever a time that it could be justified or thought to be irritable and resentful, Jesus could have had it. Can you imagine your response in that kind of situation? If he's English, he said something like this. There's no time for that. Can't you see I'm a bit occupied? I'm dying myself. Oh, you've turned your tune... Why should I listen to you when you were mocking me a moment ago? This is how our minds would be working, wouldn't it? If we were in that kind of situation, maybe you have been in that kind of situation, and someone has shown you an unkindness, and someone has hurt you, and then they've come back, and they're needing something from you, and they ask something from you, and what do you do? Why should I help you? You deserve to be here. I don't. But not Jesus. He's not like that. Love means that he's not irritable and resentful. And the Lord Jesus Christ looks at this man and he says to him in verse 43 of that same chapter of Mark 23, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is love. That's the depth of love. This is love that is not irritable and not resentful. Christ could have just turned, didn't hear. He didn't ignore him. In that moment, he was bearing the sins of that man. And at the same time, inviting that man into heaven. Do you get the magnitude of what Christ was doing on the cross? 
around him with all these sinners who've fallen short of his glory. And there was Christ taking their sins upon him. This is love that is not easily angered. Jesus did display righteous anger on occasions. And then there's nothing wrong with righteous anger. He showed anger when religious leaders were exploiting others or misusing the temple. But his anger was never, ever, ever self-serving or malicious. He was slow to anger and quick to extend forgiveness and grace. And so as we see Christ's love and see that Christ is not irritable or resentful, we see that Christ is not easily angered, we need to hold up that mirror. And we need to look and gaze at it. And we need to ask ourselves the question, are you easily angered? Are you irritable or resentful? Maybe you have an excuse for it. I am not a mourning person. No, you're not. You're irritable and angry. It's not that I don't love them. They're just annoying me. And I'm going to annoy them back. It's not that I don't love them. They're just so different to me. Look, we look different. We speak different. We are different. And If he asks me that same question again, he will send me mad. I wish he would just shut up. Why did I get that job? I deserved that job. I deserved that role. I worked so much harder. That should have been mine. Why not? The scholarship should have been mine. It had my name on it. Why did they make him a deacon? I'm not arguing. I'm just making my point. You are, but you've been irritable and resentful and easily angered at the same time. I'm not shouting. I'm just making sure I'm heard. Friends, if you're irritable or resentful, if you're easily angered, it's a reflection of lack of love. And we need to repent. And we need to come back. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with the love of God. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Leah taught me a new word, or it's a combination of two words together. A friend enemy. A friend of me. Is that right, right? Friend of me? Yeah, some of you get getting this, yeah? So we've got a friend and an enemy sort of put together. You're not sure exactly what they are. But that, that's a person who loves remembering your mistakes, yeah? Have you got this person in your life? They, they're keeping score. There's a catalogue, yes? They remember your misdemeanors. And they seem to delight in telling the stories where they're the hero and, and you are the one who 
cause the problems. Other translations of this particular word says, and keeps no records of wrong. I think when we look at them, they're both sort of very close and, and, and both of them are helpful and both of them should be in our minds. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He keeps no record of wrongs. That's what love is. See, Jesus came into this world so that he could remove our sins as far as the east are from the west. I, I know that we've got some mathematicians here. I know that we've got some scientific minds here. But none of you can work out as how far the east is from the west, except by using a symbol, and it's called affinity. It's distanceless. And this is what Christ has done. He, Jesus came so that we could have our sins removed as far as the east is from the west. That is love. That's love that keeps no record of wrongs. That is a love that does not rejoice in wrongdoing. That is the same love as Christ was there, nailed to the cross, watching them gamble over his own tunic. And he looks at them and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is a love there is a love that keeps no record of wrong. They're gambling over his clothes. They just stripped him of them. He's just stolen them for him. And yet rather than holding that against them, rather than that chalking that up on there, he is saying, Father, forgive them. Jesus didn't hold grudges or keep records of people's past mistakes did not make a public spectacle of a sinner. He did encourage repentance and he offered the opportunity of a fresh start. And then the classic example of that is, is where he was there and the Jews, the religious, brought him a woman, brought this woman to him and this woman had been caught in adultery and, and, and the Jews are thinking this is going to be a great opportunity to get one over Christ and and they wanted Jesus to condemn her. They wanted Jesus to kill her. And then they go to the Romans and say, look what this awful man Jesus did. And they had this whole plan. And they were gleefully parading her sin. And they wanted Jesus to condemn her. You know the story well, don't you? I trust you know the story well. Because when they came to Jesus, he was sort of looking at the ground, writing on it. And he continued to, to do that. And then he tells them, look, okay, any of you is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And he carries on writing on the floor. And many people have amused what he's written, but we don't know. And then Jesus looks up. And Jesus stands up as though he's a judge in the courtroom. And in John 8, he, he looks at this woman, and in verse 10 of John 8, and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And this woman who'd been caught in adultery looks at Jesus and says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing. 
Jesus' love doesn't keep account and keep score. Jesus' love allows us to have our sins forgiven because the punishment that we deserve has been dealt with. And so Jesus can look that woman in the eye and say, I condemn you no more because I took the punishment you deserve. Now go and sin no more. This is Christ's love. Christ's love on display for us. A love that keeps no record of wrongs. A love that does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so again, that mirror comes out. And we have to look at ourselves and we have to ask the question, do you rejoice at wrongdoing? Did you keep a record of wrongdoings? Maybe you've not got a little black book where you write them down. But maybe there's a secret place in your heart where you write the sins of others that have been convicted against you. You remember when they last upset you. You remember when they last said something unkind to you. And you said, yes, I forgive you, but you remember it and it's there. Toby and Rachel, I'm sure you're never going to do this. But husbands and wives sometimes keep score. And when they're losing, they bring some out. When they're upset, they remind their spouse of how they've failed, how they've upset. Husbands and wives, do you remember your spouse's past failings? And do you use them to hold them against them? To get your own way? To make yourself feel better? You mess up and then you bring a bigger messing up of theirs? Uh-huh. Mine trumps yours, or yours trumps mine, whatever around it is. And then when they retaliate and come back and remind you of that stupid thing you did, you go and dig deeper and remind them of that sin that they did, and they... It keeps no record of wrongdoings. Are you harboring a list of wrongdoings of fellow members? Is there someone that you are avoiding within the church family? Someone you're not talking to. Someone you are blanking because somewhere down the line they hurt you and that hurts. But rather than dealing with it properly, you're keeping a record of the wrongs. What are you watching? What what, what films? What series? What reels? So much of what is served up in the media nowadays is about rejoicing in wrongdoing, and it's done in the name of entertainment. It's only a short sex scene, it's just part of the storyline. It's not really adultery or fornication. It's just made up. 
this rejoicing in wrongdoing? What social media threads and stories are you drawn to? What are, you, what are you feeding yourself on? I think so much of this social media is a pack of lies about us portraying ourselves to be what we want others to be and then other people portraying that the failings and the miseries of others and we're just there imbibing this and rejoicing in wrongdoing and keeping a record of wrongdoing and it's all there in the cloud and we just bring it to our fingertips on our phones. And where is the love? As far as the east is from the west, that's where the love is. And yet we just have a, a click away. Remember, if you are rejoicing at wrongdoing, if you're keeping a record of wrongdoing, it's a reflection of a lack of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I'm so thankful there's a positive here. There's a positive here. There's lots of positives here, but this is a positive in, in, in the sense there's, there's this. You don't do that, but what you do, you rejoice with the truth. If love doesn't rejoice at long doing, what does it do? It rejoices in the truth. There's not a neutral setting. Yeah. We're not sitting on the fence. You're either rejoicing in wrongdoing or you're rejoicing in the truth. Love is an action. And it requires the opposite reaction. And the opposite reaction is to rejoice with the truth. And Jesus identifies himself as truth, doesn't he? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And our Lord Jesus Christ continually spoke the truth because he is the truth. And he rejoiced when others recognized and accept the truth of God's message. He celebrated the repentance of sinners and the faith of those who believed him. And it's just like the parable he told. The parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15 and verse 7. He talks about the, the 99 that are safely in the fold and there's one out there and the shepherd goes out and finds him. And then he rejoices and he's excited because he's found the sheep that was lost. And Luke 15, 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Isn't this an incredible thought? An amazing thought that Jesus and the whole heavenly host rejoice when someone comes to faith. It was their joy, and this is what Jesus does. Jesus rejoices in the truth, and he rejoices when he sees the truth take hold in someone's life. You see, Jesus also told the truth, even when it seemed like it got him into trouble. And there's so many examples of that, but one of the examples that I want to, to pull to your attention now is when he was in front of Pilate. When he was being condemned, when it was looking down the barrel and his death was imminent and ahead of him. And in John 18 verse 34, Pilate says to him, so you're a king. And Jesus says, so 
You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus could have said something different. Jesus could have took the Fifth Amendment and been quiet. Jesus, he didn't. He spoke the truth. Love would not allow him to do anything other than speak the truth and rejoice in the truth. And what a truth to rejoice in. He is a king and he was born for that purpose and he came to the world for that purpose and it was to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who listens to the truth hears his voice. And everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And if you're listening here this morning, it's because you're one of his. And you know the truth because he's made it alive in your life. Every part of Jesus was to tell the truth. Sometimes love demands the truth to be told even when it's uncomfortable. Jesus, by bringing the truth, in some ways you could say that's what the Lord used to bring about his death. But there's other times when, out of love, Jesus spoke words that were uncomfortable. And then we talked about Jesus' counterculture kind of love, and it demonstrated itself when he spoke to that Samaritan woman. All the things were against that conversation ever happening. But Jesus, out of love, out of kindness, out of compassion, spoke to her. But in the midst of that discourse, Christ said some difficult things to her. And he did it out of love. He did it out of love because she needed to hear these things. And in John 4, where that whole passage is outlined, and in verse 16, in that interaction to her, she's wanting that, 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 that water that will satisfy her eternally. She hasn't got her minds around it quite yet. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Jesus knew exactly what he's doing. And then some of you might think, that wasn't very loving. That's not very caring. But we know that it must be because this is a Christ who is love. And the woman answers him and says, I have no husband. And he could have left there, couldn't he? But Jesus, in his interaction with her, said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. You have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus was not rejoicing in wrongdoing, no. Jesus was being used, and the Holy Spirit was at work, and that woman was being convicted of her sin. And friends, we mustn't confuse this. You see, Jesus does rejoice in the truth. And he doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings. But we do need to see the wrong in our lives. And we do need to repent of it. And Jesus, out of love, opens up and speaks into that woman's life and shows her of her great need of Christ. 
He was willing to speak the truth and all the truth so that she could see her need and so that ultimately she could come to know Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. So that she, a woman, she, a non-Jew, she, an outcast, could worship Jesus in spirit, in truth. This is the love of Christ. But as we come to our situation, do we rejoice with the truth? As we, as we look on our lives, as we look on our lives now, do we rejoice in the truth? And we may have to take a step back and say, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? The truth that everyone here has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth that no one here of themselves is right with God. The truth that everyone here deserves an eternity of eternal punishment and condemnation from the righteous, awesome God who is perfect and holy. Do you know that truth? Because that truth is frightening. But it's real. Your sins will be judged by the eternally pure and righteous God of whom you have offended. But the truth doesn't end there. The truth is the fact that Jesus is the way. And every one of you here this morning who knows the truth, you are not trusting in anything you could ever do, but you're trusting in the fact that Jesus on the cross took your sin and took your punishment and the stripes that you deserve, Christ bore for you. Do you know the truth? Do you know your sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you died yesterday, today you will be in paradise? Do you know that? Because if you don't know that, you don't know the truth. And that's what you need. You need to know the truth of a loving God who sent his only son that whosoever shall believe. And if you haven't believed, and if you haven't repented, now is the time. I can guarantee you now is the time. That's what God's word says. Today is the time. Tomorrow might not come. You might not have this evening, but you have this moment. And this moment, if you don't know the truth for yourself, you should ask God to give you the truth and open you up to the truth so that you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And those of us that know the truth, do we truly rejoice when someone comes to know the Lord as their Savior? Do you? And it gets tough, doesn't it? Because what if that Boko Haram member became a Christian? Would you rejoice? What if that person in the international office that's caused you so much aggravation came to face? Would you rejoice? Heaven will rejoice. If we're part of it, we should be rejoicing too because we should rejoice with the truth. Does the truth of salvation blow you away? Do you sometimes wake up and think, how can it be Christ died for me? Do, do you get just like, this is too much. This is incredible. 
Would you tell the truth and walk in the truth even if it's going to cost you? Cost you fame, cost you fortune? Some people it's actually costing them their life now. Or would you tell a white lie or a half-truth or a pink truth or whatever you call it so that you protect yourself? Do you rejoice with the truth? Do you tell the truth in love even when that truth is uncomfortable and unwelcome? And I underline, do you tell the truth in love? You see, we have to remember that rejoicing in the truth is a reflection of love. We've held the mirror up to us, haven't we? And it can make us feel uncomfortable. It can make us feel uncomfortable, particularly when we are convicted of our lovelessness. And I'm sure that's how the Corinthians were feeling. This is a description of God's love. And we're seeing this love practically in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and Paul was saying to those Corinthians, and this is the love that you should be displaying. And God's word is saying to us now, this is the love that you individually should be displaying. This is the love that we collectively at LPC should be showing. And the truth is this, God's love for us means that we can know this love and become this love. And with the help of the Holy Spirit who pours out God's love into our lives, we do not need to remain loveless or half-hearted in our love. The mirror is there in front of us. The challenge is this, LPC. The challenge is this, Christian friend. What are you going to do about it? You're going to walk past the mirror on the way out. And so often I've been here looking out and I've seen someone come into church and they've stopped by the mirror and they've looked and they've adjusted themselves and they've come in looking good. How are you going to look when you go out? That's a big question. It doesn't matter what you physically look like when you come into this building. But what makes a difference is are you going to go out there in the love and filled in the love and demonstrating the love of God? Because if we're not, we're like a clanging gong. We're empty. We are nothing. And we gain nothing. And yet, friends, we can have everything in Christ. Everything through our God who loved us with an everlasting love. Everything with the Holy Spirit who pours out God's love into our lives. Amen.